0: Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 23, Genesis chapters 24 and 25. Genesis chapter 24. And, um, you know, last week was one of the shorter chapters. In the Bible, this week we're going to get into one of the longer chapters into the Bible. And I think that the best way to do this is to go ahead and, and let's read 24 all the way through because it is a complete, pretty much complete story um, that uh, it, that I think is best told if we just go all the way through it and not break it up. So let's read Genesis chapter 24. By now, Abraham was old, advanced in years, and Adonai had blessed Abraham in everything. Abraham said to the servant who had served him the longest, who was in charge of all he owned, put your hand under my thigh because I want you to swear by Adonai, God of heaven and God of the earth, that you will not choose a wife for my son from among the women of the Kenani, among whom I'm living, but that you will go to my homeland, to my kinsmen, to choose a wife for my son Yitzhak. The servant replied, suppose the woman isn't willing to follow me to this land. Must I then bring your son back to the land from which you came? And Abraham said to him, see to it that you don't bring my son back there. Adonai, the God of heaven, he, who took me away from my father's house, and away from the land I was born in, who spoke to me and swore to me, I will give you this land, I will give this land to your descendants, he will send his angel ahead of you. And you're to bring a wife for my son from there. But if the woman's unwilling to follow you, then you are released from your obligation under my oath. Just don't bring my son back there. The servant put his hand into the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning the matter. Then the son took, uh, rather than the servant, took ten of his master's camels, all kinds of gifts from his master, got up and went to Iran Naharayim, to Nahor city. Towards evening, when the women go out to draw water, he had the camels kneel down outside the city by the well. He said, Adonai, God of my master Abraham, please let me succeed today and show your grace to my master Abraham. Here I am, standing by the spring as the daughters of the townsfolk come out to drink, to draw water. I will say to one of the girls, please lower your jug so that I can drink. And if she answers, yes, drink, and I will water your camels as well, then let her be the one you intend for your servant Gitzah. This is how I will know that you have shown grace to my master. Well, before he finished speaking, Rivka, the daughter of Betuel, son of Milka, the wife of Nehor, Abraham's brother, came out with her jug on her shoulder. The girl was very beautiful, a virgin, never having had sexual relations with any man. She went down to the spring, filled her jug and came up. The servant ran to meet her and said, Please, give me a sip of water from your jug to drink. Drink, my lord, she replied, and immediately lowered her jug onto her her arm and let him drink. When she was through letting him drink, she said, I will also draw water for your camels until they have drunk their fill. She quickly emptied her jug into the trough, then ran again to the well to draw water and kept on drawing water for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence, waiting to find out whether Adonai had made his trip successful or not. When the camels were done drinking, the man took a gold nose ring, weighing one-fifth of an ounce and two gold bracelets, weighing four ounces, and asked, Whose daughter are you? Tell me, please. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? And she answered, I am the daughter of Betuel, the son Milcha born to Nahor, adding, We have plenty of straw and fodder and room for staying overnight. The man bowed his head and prostrated himself before Adonai. Then he said, "Blessed be Adonai God of my master Abraham, who has not abandoned his faithful love for my master, because Adonai has guided me to the house of my master's kinsman." The girl ran off and told her mother's household what had happened. Rivka had a brother named Laban. When he saw the nose ring and the bracelets on his sister's wrists besides And when he heard his sister Rivka's report of what the man had said to her, he ran out to the spring and found the man standing there by the camels. Come on in, he said, "you whom Adonai has blessed. Why are you standing outside when I have made room in the house and prepared a place for the camels? So the man went inside, and while the camels were being unloaded and provided straw and fodder, water was brought for him to wash his feet and the feet of the men with him. But when a meal was set before him, he said, I won't eat until I say what I have to say. Lavon said, speak. He said, I am Abraham's servant. Adonai has greatly blessed my master so that he has grown wealthy. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male and female slaves, camels and donkeys. Sarah, my master's wife, bore my master a son when she was old, and he has given him everything he has. My master made me swear, saying, You are not to choose a wife for my son from among the women of the Canani, among whom I am living. Rather, you are to go to my father's house, to my kinsmen, to choose a wife for my son. And I said to my master, Suppose the woman isn't willing to follow me. Abraham answered me, Adonai, in whose presence I live, will send his angel with you to make your trip successful, and you are to pick a wife. For my son, for my kinsman in my father's house, this will release you from your obligation under my oath. But if when you come to my kinsmen, they refuse to give her to you, this too will release you from my oath. So today I came to the spring and said, Adonai, God of my master Abraham, if you're causing my trip to succeed in this purpose, then here I am standing by the spring. I will say to one of the girls coming out to draw water, let me have a sip of water from your jug. And if she answers, yes, drink, and I will water your camels as well, then let her be the woman you intend for my master's son. And even before I had finished speaking to my heart, there came Rivka going out with her jug on her shoulder. And she went down to the spring and drew water. When I said to her, please let me have a drink, she immediately lowered the jug from her shoulder and said, drink, and I will water your camels as well. So I drank. And she had the camel's drink, too. And I asked, Whose daughter are you? And she answered, The daughter of Bethuel, son of Nahor, whom Milcah bore to him. Then I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her wrists, bowed my head, prostrated myself before Adonai, and blessed Adonai, God of my master Avraham, for having led me in the right way to obtain my master's brother's granddaughter for his son. So now, if you people intend to show grace and truth to my master, tell me. But if not, tell me so that I can turn elsewhere. Ravon and Betuel replied, Since this comes from Adonai, we can't say anything to you, either good or bad. Rivka is here in front of you. Take her. Go. Let her be your master's son's wife, as I has said. When Abraham's servant heard what they said, he prostrated himself on the ground to Adonai. Then the servant brought out silver and gold jewelry together with clothing and gave them to Rivka. He also gave valuable gifts to her brother and mother. He and his men then ate and drank and stayed the night. In the morning, they got up and he said, send me off to my master. Her brother and mother said, well, let the girl stay with us a few days, at least 10. And after that, she'll go. And he answered them, don't delay me. Since Adonai has made my trip successful, but let me go back to my master. They said, we will call the girl and see what she says. They called Rivka and asked her, will you go with this man? And she replied, I will. So they sent their sister Rivka away with her nurse, Abraham's servant and his men. They blessed Rivka with these words. Our sister, may you be the mother of millions. May your descendants possess the cities of those who hate them. Then Rivka and her maids mounted the camels and followed the man. So the servant took Rivka and went on his way. Meanwhile, Yitzhak, one evening after coming along the road from Ber Lachairoi, he was living in the Negev, went out walking in the field. And as he looked up, he saw the camels approaching. Rivka too, Rivka too looked up and When she saw Yitzhak, she quickly dismounted the camel. She said to the servant, Who who is this man walking in the field to meet us? When the servant replied, It's my master. She took her veil and covered herself. The servant told Yitzhak everything he had done. Then Yitzhak brought her into his mother Sarah's tent and took Rivka and she became his wife and he loved her. Thus uh, Thus was Yitzhak comforted the loss of his mother. Well, the scriptures are preparing us here to move on now from Abraham as the focus to Isaac and then to Jacob and then to the Israelites. These three men known as the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Now, just as Abraham needed children, for the covenants of promise to be carried on, so did Isaac. And the first step toward that end, of course, was a suitable wife. Abraham knew that the choice of a wife for Isaac was all-important, so he used his highest, best, most trustworthy servant to go find Isaac, a wife, but in a manner carefully prescribed by Abraham. The first matter is the choice must not be a Canaanite woman. I mean, after all, if Abraham and his descendants were going to possess the land, it wouldn't be too well for Isaac to enter into an alliance, a marriage, with one whose family might soon be dispossessed of their land. Besides, Abraham didn't want a woman raised in the Canaanite religions to raise the children of the promise. Second, in the unlikely event that the servant was unsuccessful in persuading the chosen wife to come back down to Canaan, the servant was not to take Isaac up to Mesopotamia for the marriage. So, the servant is sent north, back to Abraham's homeland up in Mesopotamia. Further, he's to find a family member a kinsman for Isaac to marry. Now, we can understand why back in chapter 22 we were given Abraham's brother's genealogy now because Abraham was hopeful it would be from among these that Isaac's future bride was going to come. Well, Abraham wasn't worried about this deal okay? because he knew God was preparing the way for him. The worried party was the servant. Not Abraham. Okay, I mean, that said, the fact that Abraham made the servant recite an oath plus the fact that Abraham was very old now and fully realizing that his last breath could come at any moment says that Abraham suspected, I mean, this says that Abraham suspected he may not live to see the day that his son Isaac obtained a wife. Therefore, since he might not be around, to examine and give his blessing to this proposed wife, he gave all the requirements and the disqualifications for a wife for Isaac to his servant to carry out in his stead. By the way, let me mention something because this can be a little bit confusing. Some people don't bother to look on a map and try to find the city of Nahor. It ain't on there. Okay. The city of Nahor just—it just simply is another name for Haran. Okay, this is where his brother was located, so it got to be known as the city of Nahor. Now, this oath is recited with Abraham requiring the servant to put his hand under Abraham's thigh. It says, "Okay, that—that that some kind of gesture." Accompanies an oath was normal for that and all eras, really, including our era. Don't we raise our hand, you know, when we swear? And even in Abraham's time, we have records of a hand being raised as part of a swearing in, swearing to a promise. Now, what does hand under the thigh mean? Well, it's a Hebrew idiom. And believe it or not, it's referring to uh, to, uh, Abraham's genitals. Now, as weird and just plain icky as that might sound, I mean, there, there is a meaning to this that the ancient rabbis have spoken of that does make sense. Now, whether they're right or wrong, I can't tell you. But this is what they say this was about. It, it, it is in the male genitals that the covenant sign of the promise from Yahweh is carried. Circumcision. Circumcision. Genesis 17.11 says, And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between you and me. Later in Genesis, we're going to find Jacob, Abraham's grandson, requiring the same exact hand under the thigh gesture of swearing an oath from his son, Joseph. Okay, so, this odd action, all right, the rabbi say, is seen as invoking the power and presence of God as the one who created the covenant and also the one who guarantees the oath. Now, we find this exact gesture, other than the other place I mentioned in the Bible, nowhere else in any other culture at any time. And with only the two mentions of it in the Bible Um, and and, and interestingly they involve only the patriarchs and it's all about carrying out the provisions of the Abrahamic covenant now the words of instruction Abraham gives to his servant are the last recorded words of Abraham in the Bible and the transition we see between Some of his first recorded statements versus what we're now reading is striking. I mean, here his faith is firm. There's no worry because all is in God's hands and he completely trusts that Yahweh will bring about all that he promised to Abraham. Before, if you recall, he asked, oh, how will I know that I'll possess the land? You know, and he lied about Sarah being his wife and he wanted to know how he'd have descendants if Sarah was barren, and so on and so on and so on. Okay, This is what years and years of walking with God brings. Maturity and faith. It just doesn't happen fast enough, does it? Well, this trusted servant, almost for sure, Eleazar of Damascus, spoken of in earlier chapters, has been much affected by Abraham. Because he journeys back to Mesopotamia, Abraham's birthplace, and as he arrives in the city of Nahor, he prays to God that God's will would be done. Now, notice that although in some Bible versions Eliezer is shown calling God Adonai, or Lord, in the original Hebrew he calls God Yahweh. Okay, He uses God's personal name. And here we're going to see something we'll encounter often in the Bible. A woman or women coming to the well or a spring to fetch water. Now, this is not a romantic notion or some literary device. Okay, Women of the Middle East in that era stayed pretty much separate from men for the most part. Um, there were certain times of the day when it was understood that women would go to the water well, to a spring, to a river, whatever, to draw water, which was just a standard task for women, and usually men would not be around. Now, this was all about traditional modesty. And in particular, this tradition applied to unmarried girls and younger women. Now, therefore, often, when we get a narrative about a male Bible character encountering a woman at the well or a spring or something like that, there is this kind of sense of surprise. The girl's a little bit taken back or she's a little bit startled at the sight or the voice of a man um, because normally a man wasn't supposed to be there. Right. Now th- this practice, by the way, is still prevalent in many parts of the world today. Now, an interesting part of this chapter occurs in verse 10. Because it speaks of Abraham's servant taking ten camels with him for his trek to the north to go wife hunting. Now, most archaeologists will say this cannot be. Because camels were unknown to the region at this time. This time being 1850 to 1900 BC. Now, some fairly recent findings, though, shed some light on this matter. Records found in southern Mesopotamia dating from the old Babylonian kingdom. This is the one from around 2000 BC. This is an entirely different Babylonian kingdom than the one from around 600 BC that Nebuchadnezzar reigned over. Whole different deal. Okay. Um, they found these documents that make mention of drinking camel's milk. Further, some Sumerian and Akkadian writings from that same era make mention of a strange creature used for transportation across the desert that quite literally, when you just translate it word for word in Akkadian, means donkey of the sea land. Okay? And with those writings were pictographs of, guess what? Dromedaries. Right? What we erroneously call one-hump camels. Okay? In fact, a dromedary is not a one-hump camel. It's an entirely different animal. It's not a camel. A dromedary is a one-hump creature. A camel is a two-hump creature. And it seems as though the original habitat of the camel was Mesopotamia and then on to the Far East. While the original habitat habitat of the dromedary, interestingly, was the Arabian Peninsula, far to the south. That Abraham might have dromedaries makes all kinds of sense as he roamed the southern regions and constantly dealt with Semite tribes of the south. So any idea that Genesis 24 which is what many archaeologists want to imply is, is a much later addition or a redaction, just doesn't hold water anymore. Now understand, Eliezer went to the well at the time of day he did because he knew that's where he'd find some eligible females. I mean, this wasn't some type of fortuitous coincidence. In the Middle East, you want to meet women? Go to the well. Okay he, he sees some girls coming all right and proceeds to lay out kind of a fleece before God. that is he sets up this kind of test so that he can be sure that the woman he picks for it for Isaac is the woman God intends and wouldn't you know it before he even finishes speaking to God, the answer to his prayers arrives in the form of Rivka, Rebecca. Okay, daughter of Betuel. Well, just to kind of get the family relationship straight here for us, Betuel was Abraham's nephew. Okay, He was the son of Abraham's brother, Nahor. So Betuel, who was Rivka's father, right, would have been Isaac's um, first cousin okay um, so the relationship between Isaac and Rivka was by blood but apparently wasn't too close okay now because Rivka spoke the exact words Eliezer had set out as the fleece he knew he was on the right track but he kept silent 'Cause he wanted to see how this all played out. He wanted to be sure. That she kept drawing water until all ten camels, Eleazar, or ten dromedaries actually, that Eleazar had brought with him were fully satisfied, was probably pretty impressive. Because those guys drink a lot of water. Alright? So he takes the next step. Eliezer gives the girl, Rebecca, gifts of significant value, including, yes, a nose ring. Not at all an unusual piece of jewelry for that day. Of course, Rebecca races home. She tells Mom and all the other female clan members uh, what had just happened. And when Rebecca's brother, Laban, all right, who is going to play an important role in this biblical story sometime in the future when he sees this expensive jewelry worn by his sister, man, he runs to meet this guy who gave her all this stuff. Well, while meeting a stranger, a guest, is always a big deal. right? Back in that era, the fact that this was a wealthy stranger is what really excites Laban. I mean, laying on the schmooze now. okay? Laban even invokes the name of Yahweh in greeting Eliezer. I mean, we shouldn't be too impressed or draw very much from Laban using God's personal name. Later on, we're going to find out that Laban possessed many gods. So he was just kind of being cordial all right, in using the name of the god that Eliezer's master worshipped. Well, Eliezer is now invited to stay with the family. But first, you have to have a meal. But for Eliezer, first things first. Eliezer's a loyal servant. He's on a mission. He's on a hunt. All right. So he wants to know if he's just wasting his time. Okay? So he, straight, he states straight away for the record who his master is and what his personal goal and assignment is. Then, so there can't be any doubt that this girl Rivka's modesty uh, was not violated, nor that she had committed anything untoward in speaking with a male stranger, all right? And that all intentions were honorable. He then goes through this long restatement of everything he was told and how his day had gone, all right? How all this, how all this led him to Rivka. Well, in customary eastern hospitality Rivka's father and brother say, well, far be it from them to go against God's will for their daughter I mean, little doubt it was not so that they were so anxious to get rid of Rivka um, it was that they already knew from the expensive bracelets and that nose ring that the customary gifts they were going to receive in exchange for the giving of her hand would in this case be coming from a very wealthy man and therefore be a king's ransom, and it was. Well, after a little more bartering, Rebecca, Rivka, along with the women who cared for her as the woman rather who cared for her as a child, accompany Eliezer back to Canaan. Notice, interestingly, in this whole scenario, how little role the father, Beth plays in all this. Okay. Laban, Rivka's brother is the dominant player from Rivka's side of the family and this is unusual Okay, the only explanation would be that Betuel was feeble from age or sickness and as would have been customary, Laban probably Betuel's firstborn took over the duties as guardian of all the clan's unmarried females well thus in the in verses 54 to 55, when we see Eliezer asking for leave to take Rebecca and go, it's her mother and brother, not her father, all right, who request that she not go just yet. So a little more dickering, and, Rivka sta- and upon Rivka stating she was ready to go, permission to leave was granted. And the scriptures tell us that Rivka's nurse accompanies her on the journey back. Well apparently this nurse is a much loved family member that could well have actually been the infant and toddler Rivka's wet nurse, who eventually became sort of a companion and guardian of Rivka. In fact, the, the reason for this suspicion is that in the, the, the Hebrew word that's usually translated nurse in our Bibles is menekhet, which means wet nurse, not nurse, but wet nurse. Of course, Rivka was well beyond that stage of life, so it's likely it likely indicates that this personal nurse began her stay with the family as Rivka's wet nurse and then continued on from there. Well, as Rivka, her nurse, and several handmaidens mount the camels and get ready to leave for Canaan, a very interesting benediction is pronounced over Rivka. Now, to my surprise, with a, I did a little bit of research, and I expected this to be kind of a standard benediction of that era, and it wasn't. All right, I, I can't find anything like it anywhere. Rather, this is just what it looks like. It's divine prophecy. Okay, that I'm sure her family had no idea they were speaking over her. And it concerns her producing an enormous number of descendants, and that those descendants would have victory over their enemies. Now, this of course plays in perfectly with the covenant Yahweh had made with Abraham, the covenant which would now be inherited by Rivka's future husband, Isaac. So the caravan starts to wind its way back to Canaan. And Isaac and Rebekah lay eyes on each other for the first time. Now, we read that the minute she knew who he was, what did she do? She covered her face with a veil. Okay. Okay. Well, this covering of her face with the veil is kind of interesting. Okay? I've heard many teachings on this part in Genesis, and it was usually taught that women in that era covered their faces with veils in the presence of males due to modesty. Well, that simply is not the case. Hebrew women didn't wear veils. Okay? As a matter of fact, um, there's no mention of Sarah wearing a veil. And it was also not a Mesopotamian custom to wear veils as a show of modesty. And this, this veil idea that, that we usually put in our minds of this flimsy, lacy net that you can kind of see through, you know, like a bridal veil, that wasn't the case at all because that sort of thing didn't even exist back then. They, they had no means to make fine, fine, fine mesh netting. Okay. Um there, there was some use of veils in that part of the world in that era as a kind of decoration, uh, even as a show of wealth. Right? The only customary use of veils among Israelites, Canaanites, Mesopotamians, Sumerians, and so on had to do with wedding and betrothal procedures. Okay It was customary for the bride to be married with her veil down and the groom not allowed to see her without that veil for some amount of time after the wedding okay little history of where the modern practice of the bridal veil is usually in place during a wedding ceremony and is lifted by the groom upon completion of the wedding vows that we use today kind of kind of comes from this era Old, old practice. So, what this likely indicated was that Rivka was letting Isaac know that A, she was the one his father had chosen for him, and B, she had consented to be his wife. And in fact, the betrothal period had already been entered into. Well, Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebecca. Okay? The father and mother for the next generation now of the line of promise was in place. Now, what's kind of interesting is that we are told that Isaac and Rebekah went into the tent of Isaac's departed mother. And apparently it became theirs. Now, Remember, in this era, the men and the women generally stayed separate, even after marriage. Okay. Husbands and wives, particularly if they were wealthy or the heads of large clans, generally slept in separate quarters. Okay. Actually, what happened here is that this bride and groom entering Sarah's tent was symbolic of Rivka assuming the position of matriarch that Sarah had held all during her life. Sarah's tent had been maintained for some time just for the ceremonial purpose until a bride for Isaac had been chosen. And you know, I very much like how this chapter ends. When the scripture states that Isaac found great comfort finally in the loss of his mother by marrying Rivka. And obviously... Up until Rivka, Sarah had been his primary contact with the female world. He must have been very, very close with his mother. Anyway, let's move on now. We're going to read a little bit of chapter 25. We'll talk talk a little bit about that tonight. Let's go go to verses, um, oh, let's say 1 through 11 tonight. Genesis chapter 25. Let's just read through verses 1 through 11. Abraham took another wife, whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimron, Yokshan, Medan, Midyan, Yishba, and Shua. Yokshan fathered Shva and Dedan. And the sons of Dedan were Asherim, the Tushim, and Lumim. The sons of Midyan were Aifa, Efer, Hanoch, Avida, and Elda'ah. All these were descendants of Keturah. Abraham gave everything he owned to Yitzhak. But to the sons of the concubines, he made grants while he was still living and sent them off to the east, to the land of the Kadim, far away from where Yitzhak, uh, his son, lived. This is how long Abraham lived, 175 years. Then Abraham breathed his last, dying at a ripe old age, an old man, full of years, and he was gathered to his people. Yitzhak and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zokar the Hittite by Mamre, the field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Het. Abraham was buried there with Sarah his wife, after Abraham died, God blessed Yitzhak, his son, and Yitzhak lived near Be'er Lahai Roy. Okay, you know, there's an awful lot of information that's going to be jam-packed in this chapter. And I suspect that prior to 1948, and the absolutely unthinkable fulfillment of the prophecy that Israel would have been reborn as a nation of Jews, that this listing of tribes coming from Abraham would have been relatively unimportant except for librarians and historians. But now that Israel has returned to their homeland and with all these happenings of the Middle East that are shaking the whole earth, these genealogical listings take on a little more important tone for the church especially, okay. As do the very strange circumstances that we haven't come to yet, but will in this chapter, of the birth of Isaac's twin sons, Yaakov and Esau. Well, this is the winding up of the story of Abraham, and in later verses, we're going to hear some more about Ishmael. Okay, we are given some final information about Abraham that we simply need to make some mental notes of for now. First, important. Abraham uh, Abraham it says took another wife, a woman named Keturah, Keturah, okay, whom we know next to nothing about. Okay, Bible scholars are not even totally clear whether or not Abraham was married to Sarah at the same time as Keturah. That said, after some further studying and research, I think it's clear that we should not assume that Abraham's taking Keturah as a wife was in a chronological sequence with the previous chapter of Genesis. That is, that Keturah necessarily came after Sarah. This literary device the Torah employs by interrupting the sequence of events, and then going back some years all right, and adding some new information about someone or something right, is not unusual for the Bible as a whole or, frankly, for other writings from other cultures in that era and even here as well before and well after that. Now, one possibility concerning the timing of Keturah stands out above all the rest to me. All right? These sons of Abraham born to Keturah could have been born to Abraham even before Isaac. Okay, This is because Abraham, we're told, was far past human ability for a male to sire a child, All right? just as it was for Sarah to produce a child when Isaac was conceived. Okay? Therefore, unless these sons of Keturah were miraculous conceptions which is unlikely. They had to come well before Sarah bore the miracle baby, Isaac. Now, of course, one could argue that upon God making Abraham capable of siring Isaac, Abraham regained fertility for some extended period of time. And that's a possibility. And several scholars choose to look at it that way. Anyway, but I just want you to see is that it's pretty much impossible to nail down exactly when Abraham took Keturah as a wife and when these other children were born and whether these sons came before or after Isaac. Okay. Now, we're told that Keturah gave Abraham several children, of which six are mentioned. Now, we have, like I said, no idea who Keturah is. We don't know what her genealogy is. Okay. Now, as customary... As is customary in the Bible, only the male children, the sons, are listed, but it's unthinkable that Keturah didn't also give Abraham several daughters as well. Okay? However, it is clear that the etymology of Keturah's name okay, is from the Hebrew word ketoret, which means spices or incense. Okay? And in fact, certain tribes from the Middle East that have long been suspected as being descendants of Abraham and Keturah were associated with the spice traits in ancient times. It's also helpful for us to know that the prime spice-producing region of the Middle East at that time, and for many centuries to come after that, was an area of southern Arabia known today as Yemen Okay. And this also shows just how extensive and regular trade and travel was among these ancient peoples so very long ago. Now we're going to run into several of these named children of Keturah later on in Scripture, and yet others we're never going to hear of again. So, so let me point out one son in particular, because the territory he settled was going to play a large role in Moses' life. And that son was Midian. And true to his mother's name, the Midianites were known as spice traders, particularly of that highly valued spice, frankincense. And their territory was located... On the Arabian Peninsula, bordered by this finger of the Red Sea, that's called the Gulf of Aqaba, right here. Now, these are the same Midianites that we're talking about here, as as that came from Keturah, um, and the same region of land to where Moses fled from Egypt when he killed that that uh, soldier. It's also the same place where God came to Moses in a burning bush and it's the same place where Moses found a wife. In fact, it's my view that the Gulf of Aqaba is the biblical Red Sea that Moses led the Israelites through to safety when they were fleeing from the armies of Pharaoh. Well, these six sons of Keturah, along with the son of Hagar, the Egyptian girl, um, Ishmael, um, they were going to go on together to form what we loosely call the Arab peoples, people who populated the Middle East and Northern Africa. But be aware that the term Arab wasn't even valid until sometime after the reign reign of King David. Okay, that is, there is no such identifiable and named people group as Arabs or Arabians until at least 900 B.C., some nine centuries after the time we're talking about here. Now, we're told in verse 5 that Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but um, and that would have made Isaac a very wealthy man. But it also most certainly set the stage for a lot of jealousy and strife between Isaac and his large cadre of half-brothers and sisters, especially Ishmael. And that strife and jealousy continues to this very day. Now, with all those brothers and sisters, dozens at the least, Abraham was going to have to do something to assure that Isaac was decisively and without opposition elevated above all the rest and given a clear path to continue along the road of covenant promise that Yahweh had ordained for him and so yet again we have a dramatic example here of this ongoing God principle of dividing electing and separating and this time The subject of the division and separation is Isaac. Now, after we're told in verse 5 that Abraham gave everything to Isaac, we're also told that Abraham gave gifts before he died to the sons of his concubines. Now, don't get confused here. Although most Bibles will say that that Abraham took Keturah as a wife, and sometime earlier Hagar as well, they were technical, not technically actual wives, as was Sarah. They were concubines, kind of a class, a different class of wife. Okay? These so-called wives would not have been given a Ketchubah, a marriage contract. Okay? They would not have had a marriage ceremony. Rather, there would have been a simple declaration of, by Abraham of their status of being included in his household and as their being legitimate mothers of his children. These concubines, like Keturah, like Hagar, were well treated and respected, and they enjoyed the status of being joined to Abraham's clan, but they did not have the exalted place as a true legal wife, and their children would have had lesser rights of inheritance than the sons of the true legal wife. Now, in fact, the law of that era was that it was entirely up to the father to choose which, if any, of his children from his concubines, if they would gain any inheritance at all. Okay. So while Isaac got all of the inheritance, all of the family authority, the other sons of Abraham, by means of his concubines, got gifts. Okay? Like, likely very substantial gifts because Abraham was so wealthy. Now, were there other concubines besides Keturah and Hagar? Possibly. Okay? But at this point, it's unclear. Abraham then sent these sons of his concubines away to other territories, dividing and electing always leads to separating. Okay. Now notice the parallel with God permitting circumstances to unfold which led to the necessary separation of Abraham from his nephew Lot. You remember that? Okay. Also notice what direction they were sent and what direction Lot chose. East. Why East. Why didn't Abraham send them to the north or the south or the west? I want you to just keep making these little mental notes of the direction east like we talked about from the very first day in here. Well, we're just about done for tonight. In verse 7, it says Abraham dies at the ripe old age of 175 years. I and mean, what a life Abraham lived. I mean, that each of us could have such a close and intertwined life with the lord and that his purposes would be played out through us that like this. I mean, we're told that he was gathered to his people. Now, this is a far different term from dying or being buried in the ground or went down to sheol. Okay? It implies a kind of reunion with those likely from the line of Seth, Noah and Shem. All right, who had come before him. And it also speaks to a belief that death is not the end. Okay, A concept that from here forward is going to be built upon only slightly in the Old Testament scriptures, but it's going to take on a lot greater meaning with the advent of uh, Yeshua in the New Testament. Now that said, let me close by repeating something that I want you to watch out for as we study Torah while there is a hint of something beyond the grave something beyond death in the statement gathered to his people there is no mention of going to heaven when we die Okay, I've done a fairly thorough study of death and dying in the Old Testament and I can tell you with some confidence that what lay beyond the grave, an afterlife, if you would, is not discussed with any depth at all in the Old Testament. And it seems from the varying terms used for death and dying, all of the terms being very vague in general, that it was pretty fuzzy in the minds of the people of the Old Testament what an afterlife, if any, amounted to. For some Hebrews, it is pretty obvious from Scripture that their great fear of dying without a son to carry on the family name spelled the end of their own essence as well, if they didn't have a son. Okay? That in some unexplained way a father lived on through his son. Not reincarnation, maybe not even any with any real consciousness at all, And that the idea of a human spirit being this vessel of existence after death is also not well defined in the Old Testament. The thought that somehow a human would live in heaven with God simply didn't exist until at least the close of the Old Testament, sometime after 400 B.C. We're informed that Ishmael and Isaac came together to bury their father, as would have been customary when possible. And the husband also was buried with his wife. Abraham was buried in the same tomb with Sarah, the cave of Machpelah in Hebron. And later, Isaac and Rebekah would join them at that same location as eventually with Jacob. Now, God makes it clear in verse 11, to any who might have doubt, where the line of promise led after him when it says that God blessed Isaac. okay, The handing of the torch from Abraham to Isaac is now complete. Isaac is the new patriarch of the Hebrews and Abraham is about to become but a memory. I think we'll call it a night here.